The earth is filled with His glory, the glory of God's one and only Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now that's good news. And the Him and the He has a name. And his name is Jesus. And we are about the business of passionately pursuing him. And part of that has to do with figuring out how to talk about him to the people who matter in our lives. And so that's why we've been spending uh, several weeks now in a series called Conversations. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, my name is Randy. And um, we are closing out this series uh, this morning uh, as we've just been spending some time trying, trying to uh, become uh, skilled at sharing the most important message about the most important person. Um, and so last week, I asked you all to... All of this series, you may have questions still that are unanswered, and you all did not let me down. So, <laughs> so we're going to answer every one of these questions in the next 58 minutes. Are you ready? <laughs> Is your pen loaded and ready to go? No, we're not going to do that. Um, but um, I am going to talk a, a, about a half a dozen questions here. And so this is kind of a different style of teaching that we're doing this morning. Usually we go through a book of the Bible. In two weeks, we're going to start going through the uh, New Testament book of 1 John. Um, but uh, this week, I'm basically wanting to respond to the 90-some-odd cards that uh, I uh, went through this past week. And um, so we're, I'm going to answer a few questions, and then uh, we're going to sing some more, and then answer a few more, and have communion, and so on. That's how we're proceeding, but... Do you know what the number one question that was asked by our church family here uh, last week? Th a third of you, a third of you asked this question, and it's the first question I want to talk about. It is, what if they ask me a question to which I don't know the answer? A third of you put that down. I don't think you cohorted together between services. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? That, that's one of the biggest fears or questions that I have about having a conversation with someone about Christ is, I'm in the middle of this conversation, and what if they ask a question I don't know the answer? All right? Here's, here's, here's the drill. Okay? If you get asked a question that you don't know the answer to, what do you think you're supposed to say? What does your gut tell you? Say, I don't know. Yeah, practice that for the next 20 seconds with someone next to you. Go ahead. Just look at them and say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know what? I don't, I don't know. Don't know. All right. That's good. That's very good. Thank you. Say, I don't know. I'll find out. Not just I don't know. But I don't know, I'll find out. People know when you're bluffing, don't try to bluff. Okay? They know when you're bluffing. So when you tell someone you don't know an answer to a question, it communicates that you're honest, that, you're, that you don't know everything, you're not a know-it-all. 
And it'll give you another opportunity to have a spiritual conversation. Because this is a process, okay? We're not here to just, you know, make a decision and move on to the next client or whatever. We want, we're building relationships here. And Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 2, where he told that he wanted to not only impart the gospel to the Thessalonians, but he wanted to, he, because he wanted to impart their, his, his life to them because they'd become dear to him, all right? So we're building a relationship, not just answering a question, okay? And you may even know the answer to a question they're asking, but it might derail, you know, the, the conversation. And so let's it just, I don't know, or would it be okay if I wrote that question down and we'll answer it later? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Let's deal with that a little bit later, okay? All right, let's practice saying that. I don't know. I'll find out. I don't know. I'll find out. That's good. Okay. How can I share my faith when I don't feel as if my life is all together? That second question was the second most asked question. It feels hypocritical. How can I share my faith if I don't feel like my life is together? All right? Let me answer this in two parts, okay? Let me talk about my wife here for just a moment. Last year, Sarah had back surgery. Before the surgery, she was in debilitating pain, crippling pain. Slumped, she was slumped over a yoga ball kind of pain, all right? Uh, the, day, the, the day she had surgery that night, she was able to walk like, I mean, she hadn't been able to walk in a long, long time. And then four weeks after the surgery, okay, you know, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, she was slumped over a yoga ball, all right? Um, New Year's Eve, she was playing table tennis. I mean, incredible. Okay, how would it sound if someone else was having the same problem, came to Sarah, she noticed the problem, and, but she said, you know, she thought, well, I'd like to say something, but, you know, my back hasn't been in too great a shape in the past, and, you know, my health isn't all, I feel kind of funny telling. Well, no, that's the whole point of her telling, that she had the same problem, and she went to someone who helped fix the problem. See, that's what evangelism is. Not, you know, coming over people as a morally superior person, but as one person has put it, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. All right? And, and you know, Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience. If you're here for the first time, you've come to Windsor Road, listen, you have not, we're not the, we are not the company of the arrived. We're not, okay? We're, we're a group of redeemed, recovering sinners, and we have good news to share. So we're just sharing good news about someone who's made a difference in our lives, and he can make a difference in your life too, all right? That's part one, okay? Part one, just remember, Sarah's back. That's the image, all right? Part two is this. Part two is this. It is incredibly difficult and counterproductive to share your faith when you are making no effort at all whatsoever to imitate Christ. Okay? Just, you know. One pastor put it this way to a group of pastors. If the people in your church are listening to you talk about Christianity and they can't see themselves being like you, that's not good. 
So there's no sense in having a conversation about Christ if you're not depending daily on him for your decisions, thoughts, and habits, and speech. You know, it's, it's, it's it, yeah, uh, you know, we're not perfect. Yes, we, we know, but you see, we need to express love and be consistent in loving God and loving others. And, and so that's why, I'll, I've said it before, I'll say it again, if you are a gossip at work, if you're difficult, if you're unethical, if you're cranky, if just nobody kind of likes to be around you very much because you're just really high maintenance and it's just, you know. And then they ask you where you go to church, don't tell them you come to Windsor Road. <laughs> okay? Do that. that not, not helpful. Okay? Christians are not sinless, but as we grow in Christ, Christians should sin less and less. And our lives need to exhibit an attractiveness to Jesus. Uh, there's an excellent theologian, scholar, professor, writer, author, really brilliant Christian thinker named William Lane Craig. He's written this book, Reasonable Faith. Seminaries use this. It's a why we believe what we believe book. This guy is sharp. I mean incredible. The last page of his book on all of the arguments about why you believe what you believe. Look at this. This is the last page. These are like the last couple of lines. This is after 300 pages of why you believe what you believe. Here's what he says. More often than not, it is what you are rather than what you say that will bring an unbeliever to Christ. This then is the ultimate apologetic. For the ultimate apologetic is your life. Is your life. So you can have all the arguments you want to for the existence of God that's what apologetics is about. But if you don't live like Jesus, people won't want to come to him, okay? All right, next question. Then we're going to sing some. Many of you ask this question. Okay, I, well, I live my life. I live my faith. I share Jesus. What if sharing my faith costs me my friendship with someone? What if sharing my faith costs a relationship with a family member or my spouse? Okay, it might. John 1 says, Jesus, he came into his own, and his own received him not. Right? It might. Don't let that surprise you. Okay? Because you are, you are in the kingdom of light, and then we are in this world that is still dark. So the two are going to butt heads. Okay? It might. But here's the deal, and this has been my experience. I don't know if it's been yours or not, but in my experience, the times when sharing my faith has cost me friendships is when I have come across obnoxiously, pushy, or argumentatively. And I know how to do that real well, <laughs> okay? I, know, I, know, I get a varsity in being obnoxious. I know how to do that. Few people have ever been won to Christ by losing an argument. And rarely do people ever get debated into the kingdom. So, so then there's the question, so how do I share my faith with someone who really doesn't want to hear what I have to say? And the Bible answers that question in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Peter talks to Christian wives who are trying to witness to their husbands, and he says something that our world absolutely thinks is just crazy. But this is, this is the gospel way. Wives, in the same way, be submissive. It means submit yourselves, voluntarily defer. This is something that you do to yourself, to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. See that? 
So, so you say, in the same way as what? In the same way as Jesus. You got to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus was selfless. Jesus did not assert himself and his rights, but he served. You say, this is hard. Yes, crucifixion is hard. But 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So when our spouses, the, the way to win over our spouses when they're not willing to listen to a verbal testimony, you've got to live Jesus. You've got to live Jesus. That's how, that's how it's done. Okay? Whether your unbelieving spouse is a husband or a wife, you've got to be Jesus. Be Jesus. All right? And here's the wonder of it all. See, you say, well, you know, but when are they? I've been doing that for years. Here's the wonder of it all. And, and someone else brought this point up to me in their card. Here is the wonder. Um, you don't always know what God is doing in the other person's life. You, you what, even if that person is your spouse, even if that, if that, that person is your best friend, even if that person is your name, you don't know. You don't always know. So, so your selfless Christ-like behavior toward that resistant person may very well be the last in a series of events that God is orchestrating to bring them to faith in him. And he just didn't check in with you about that. Because he's God and you're not. So do your part and follow instructions and be Jesus. Okay? Because God knows what he's doing. He is mighty. He is mighty to save. Let's sing. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gave us a glimpse of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. That's a powerful reminder, especially when we think about uh, questions concerning Christ's exclusive claims. Um, he is mighty to save because he's in charge. And there's no one like Jesus. And that very... Truth is really what many of you said, and it's true in America today, that just people kind of get some bent out of joint, and it comes across in this question, how do I respond to people who say that Christianity is intolerant of other beliefs because Jesus claimed to be the only way to God, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And one of you in your card said, you know, most non-Christians get hung up on the point that Jesus is the only way to God. They consider this incredibly judgmental and narrow. How do you get past this? All right? How do you get past this? You know? I mean, aren't all religions, you know, don't they all basically teach the same thing? Well, wait, let's, let's unpack that for a minute. Do we really want to say that Branch Davidians or religions requiring child sacrifice are, are not inferior to any other faith? You know, I mean, to say to the statement, all religious doctrines are equal and thus really don't matter, is that not a doctrine in and of itself? See? And so, and so, here's the sound bite. Inclusivism 
is really covert exclusivism. Inclusivism is really covert exclusivism. And here's a, here's a very common way of thinking about religion which it comes across in this parable, which when you unpack it, it turns out to be really nonsense. It's the story, I'm sure you've heard of it, about the blind man and the elephant. And one blind man feels the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, the elephant is like a, it's, uh, it's like a snake, flexible, long. Another touches the elephant's leg, and it's massive. It's, oh, it's like a tree, a trunk. Another blind man sees the, you know, the side of the elephant. It's a massive wall. And the blind men see only part of the elephant, not the whole. And so, therefore, in the same way, the religions of the world see only a part of spiritual truth, not the whole. Now, at first, that's very attractive. It's very non-judgmental. It's very egalitarian, etc. But here's the problem. Think with me. The story is told from the point of view of someone who's not blind. But how could you know that each blind man sees only part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? But that, you're saying that that's not possible. That's contradictory. What, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims of these different religions? How could you possibly know that no religion sees the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior knowledge of spiritual reality that you just claim no one else has. You see? Furthermore, to say that all religions are equally valid, just the statement, all religions are equally valid, that in itself is a very white, very Western view based on the European Enlightenment's idea of knowledge and values. Why should that view be privileged over anybody else's, you see? So the question is not, the question is not, should religions be exclusivist? They are. They are. The question is this, which set of unavoidably exclusivist beliefs will help us see the world as it is, see God as he is, know God as he is, and produce humble, peace-loving behavior. Which of the exclusivist views will help us love God and love others? See? See, Christianity says, Jesus says, I, I am the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. All right? Well, here's another yet common question that uh, you, know, you all put down, and it, it happens uh, maybe on a weekly basis as you're talking with people about Jesus. And it's the, it's the, it's the issue of, of suffering. And the question sounds like this. How do I respond to someone who objects to belief in God because of the world's pain and suffering? In other words, how can there be a God when there's so much suffering? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? All right? And again, that's... That's a fair question, and it needs to be responded to. And here's, 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 here's how C.S. Lewis responded. Because he, he, he used to be an atheist, and, and, here, and here's what his rationale was. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so unjust. I mean, there can't be a God because everything is so unjust. But then C.S. Lewis says, okay, but how did I get this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? See? So he's thinking of, well, a, 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 there's some sort of standard 
See, If you're sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, then you're assuming the reality of an extra-natural or supernatural standard by which you're making your judgment. And the person who holds that standard, maybe that person is God. And maybe God has reasons for injustice that I just can't figure out. But that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. See, is it possible for an all-knowing and almighty God, and this is the crux, if you're you're struggling with this issue, lock on. Is it possible for an all-knowing and almighty God to have reasons for suffering that my finite mind can't possibly grasp? See, Darwinian, Darwinian evolution depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. You know, survival of the fittest. But are we ready to say that the Jewish Holocaust or Darfur or the genocide in Rwanda is simply Darwinian evolution in action? Are we we prepared to say that? The fact that you recognize evil and injustice is evidence of the existence of a God who is wholly unjust. And we may not know the reasons why God allows suffering, but we know that it's not because, we know that it's not because he doesn't care. We know that. Why? Because Biblical Christianity says that God, unlike the other religions, takes suffering so seriously that he gets involved. God came to earth to deliberately put himself on the hook of human suffering. On the cross, in Jesus, God experienced the depths of pain and injustice and suffering. God takes the pain and suffering so seriously, he took it on himself and died And when Jesus rose from the dead, physically and bodily, he was not promising consolation for the life we never had, but he was promising restoration of the life we've always wanted. And and so because of the resurrection, every horrible thing that has ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but in some way make the eventual glory greater and greater. Everything sad everything sad. And if you were here at the Empty Arms Memorial Service last Sunday night, you know what I mean. Where the memorial service was about parents who've lost their young children. Gut-wrenching sad, horrible pain. The gospel says everything sad is because Christ rose and only Christianity gives this promise. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. How do we know that? Because God took a Roman cross, a place of horrendous suffering and pain, and he transformed it into life that is everlasting. Only God can do that. And so let's remember him now in communion. It's just a glimpse. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. And we just, right now, folks, we just get partial glimpses of what the future, our our future eternity is going to be. And it's just tastes, tastes of what is still to come. Taste of what is still to come. You know, when you're having a meal and the host says, keep your fork, (laughs) right? The best is yet to come, see? And so keep your fork, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. And... um, so our Sunday gatherings, we, we pray are just a taste of, you know, the best is yet to come. And so we just don't get to spend enough time together. We, we don't. 
Um, and that's what makes dealing with all of these questions a little frustrating because it's like we'd love to answer more and more. Um, for instance, uh, on November the 16th, the Carl Parks. Carl, are you here? Where are you? There we go. Carl is going to be just helping us equip us more and more with skills on how to share your faith. And uh, go gang tackle Carl after our services to ask him what that course is going to be about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, uh, because we have to practice to become skilled. And Carl's course is going to help us do that in a few weeks. So I hope you will consider that class. Um, I told you earlier, we're going to be going through 1 John uh, on November the 9th. Well, tomorrow night, we're going to begin an insight class uh, that's led by Ken Cuffey from uh, Urbana Seminary. And it's, it's, it's going to help us kind of get schooled a little bit more about this very important letter of 1 John. And, and some of you ask the question, how can I know that I have a relationship with God? You should consider taking that course. Uh, and you, you need to sign up today if you're going to do it, but, uh, because that, that 1 John was written to help answer that question. Um, um, right now, Dan Pack, one of our elders, is uh, leading... Uh, Defending Your Faith course, and uh, it's happening. Uh, Dan is a tenured professor at the U of I in chemical engineering, and he is uh, sold out uh, f- uh, for Christ, and he right now is training, uh, especially in the, in, with some of the questions that you all ask regarding you know, science and Christianity and how does that work. Um, let's talk a little bit about that now. Um, how, you know, one of, one of you asked, how do you respond to someone who believes in evolution? How do, how do you respond to someone who believes in evolution? Now, remember, you've got about four minutes to answer that question before the eyes start glazing over, okay? I mean, it's really easy. It's really easy to get, oh, what, what formula do I have for, you know what? Consider this. Consider this. Let me give you two creation stories and you try to figure out whether it matters which one is true. In the first story, you are a descendant of a tiny cell of primordial protoplasm washed up on an empty beach three and a half billion years ago. You are the blind and arbitrary product of time, change, and natural forces, the mere grab bag of atomic particles, a conglomeration of genetic substance. You exist on a tiny planet in a minute solar system in an empty corner of a meaningless universe. You are a purely biological entity, different only in degree but not in kind from a microbe, virus, or an amoeba. You have, you have no essence beyond your body, and at death, you will cease to exist entirely. In short, you came from nothing, and you're going nowhere. Creation story number one. Creation number, story number two, which is the Christian worldview. It says that you are the special creation of a good and all-powerful God created in his image with capacities to think, feel, and worship that set you above all other life forms. You differ from animals, not simply in degree but in kind. Not only is your kind unique, but you are unique among your kind. And your creator loves you so much and so intensely desires your companionship and affection that he has a perfect plan for your life. In addition... God gave the life of his only son that you might spend eternity with him. If you are willing to accept the gift of salvation, you can become a child of God. Story number two. Now imagine two groups of people. Let's call them the secular tribe and the religious tribe. And they subscribe to one of these worldviews. 
the religious tribe is made up of people who have an animating sense of purpose. The secular tribe has absolutely no idea why they exist at all. The religious tribe is composed of individuals who view their every thought and action as consequential. The secular tribe is made up of, a, of matter that cannot explain why it's able to think at all. And here's the question. Which of the two tribes is more likely to survive, prosper, and multiply? Powerful argument for biblical Christianity. And, and that's kind of the four-minute version, all right? Here's another option that you can help uh, either yourself or point your friends to. A couple of websites, you can write these down and look them up uh, when, you, uh, when you get home. I've mentioned this one before, uh, but this is an excellent, excellent website called Stand to Reason, str.org, str.org. It's full of articles uh, and uh, um, uh, audio, uh, visual uh, articles uh, about why we believe what we believe. Greg Kokel is the uh, um, leader of this organization. He was here a couple of years ago at Windsor. Stand to Reason, str.org. The second website is Probe, Probe, P-R-O-B-E dot org, Probe dot org. And again, it's a Why You Believe What You Believe website. And, and, um, and then thirdly, um, William Lane Craig, the author of the book I mentioned earlier, has a website. It's called reasonablefaith.org, reasonablefaith.org. And... It's an outstanding website. All of these three I would recommend. You can equip yourself with and help equip others. Especially in this, these issues of, 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 of how science relates to Christianity. And they relate. Okay? It, it, it should never be a science versus Christianity. All right? There's a relationship there. Okay? All right. Quickly. I hate to put it that way. We just don't get enough time together, do we, Kevin? How do you actually lead someone to become a Christian? That was a, that was a question several of you asked. I mean, how do I, actually, how do I actually do that? And we talked about this little pamphlet that I passed out last week. Uh, uh, but then the person says, okay, I'm ready. How do I do that? I, le- I let the Word do the talking. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. And notice I'm, I'm helping you answer some of these questions by giving you stories because people remember stories better than they remember lists. Okay? That's why Jesus taught in parables, did he not? Acts, Acts 8, 26. Let's just, let's just, let me just walk you through this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Notice Philip didn't know where, what he was getting into. He just... This is your little part. Follow instructions. The angel didn't say you're going to meet this guy and he's going to be reading. No, no, no. Just do it. Go. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an an important official in charge of all the trade. So he was Ethiopia's version of Henry Paulson. Okay? And then he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, now, okay, part two, go to that chariot and stay near it. He didn't know anything else. He said, just go. So the Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. So he was reading it out loud, huh? 
Do you understand what you're reading? So this guy is reading it out loud and looks up. There's this guy just runner here jogging. How can I unless someone, you know, explains it to me? So we invited Philip to come up, sit with him. He was reading this passage of Scripture from Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, the official said to Philip, well, who's he talking about? Who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus was that he came to reveal God to us. He came to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and sin because sin is not just a violation of laws. Sin is a culture, a kingdom, a mindset, a realm that is in direct opposition to God. Sin says, I am God. And when I sin, I put myself in a place reserved solely for God. But when God rescues us, he puts himself in a place solely reserved for us. And in Christ, God died the death we should have died. That's why we're talking about a lamb here. Jesus is the lamb that Philip was teaching the Ethiopian official about. He died the death I should have died. It was a substitution death. You see, God is a holy God, and he just, just does not dismiss sin, doesn't just put it underneath the carpet. It has to be dealt with. His holiness and justice demand that he deals with it. And that's why he punished his son. God treated Jesus like he would have treated me were I to pay for my sin. Okay? You say, well, that's not fair. No, it's grace. It's grace. And Christianity is the only faith that tells of a king who came to die for his people. And that's the good news. That's the good news. That's... That's what he said about Jesus. And verse 36 says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And verse 37 says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the official said, I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, so. So we tell people the good news about Jesus, and that means we first got to tell them the bad news. We're, you know, we're, we're here because we live to have community with God, and, but something went wrong, and what went wrong is called sin and rebellion, and what puts the world right is God sending Jesus to die for our sins, doing what we could not do on our own. And he calls us to trust him. And so you ask people, you have to make the ask, would you like Jesus to be your king, your boss, your leader, your redeemer, your forgiver? Are you willing to call on him to be your king? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God? Are you willing to turn to him, which is another word for repentance, and then follow him and lean on him for the rest of your life? The word faith means to lean on. And so I'm leaning on Jesus for direction and decisions and forgiveness and purpose and meaning. I trust him. He is most qualified to tell me how to live my life. Now, are you willing to follow him and to make that vow public? Are you willing to do that? Do you trust him? If the person says yes, praise God, take a towel. Take a towel. If, you know... If so, you may be bad. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, 
In your heart you believe, with your mouth you confess, and then your body is an expression of that commitment. It's like my wedding ring here. Demonstrates that I belong to someone. And baptism is a demonstration. I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. And it's not the water that saves. Water doesn't save. Jesus saves. Baptism declares that I've trusted Jesus to do for me what I could never do. Rick Warren has written uh, the book, The Purpose Driven Life. He says, your baptism declares your faith, shares Christ's burial and resurrection, and symbolizes your death to your old life and announces your new life in Christ. It's an act of initiation, not something you put off until you're spiritually mature. There's no delayed baptisms in the New Testament. That's what this scripture teaches us. The only conditions are belief and repentance. And verse 39 says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again. He just went on his way. You know, Philip did not know when he got up that morning that he was going to take an adventure. I like what Mark Batterson says in his book, Wild Goose Chase. He says, spontaneity is an underappreciated dimension of spirituality. In fact, spiritual maturity has less to do with long-range visions than it does with moment-by-moment sensitivity to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit may be saying to you, go, go on, go south to that, to that road. And it's our moment-by-moment sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that turns life into an everyday adventure.